We turn this morning to 2 Peter chapter 3 in God's holy word, 2 Peter 3, passage that speaks of the end of time and the return of our Lord. to read the whole of chapter 3, 2 Peter, and to take that as our text, though it's, of course, way too much text in an epistle to give attention to every detail, but I'd like to take it as a whole so we can feel something of the, the weight of what the Apostle Peter by the Spirit is saying here. 2 Peter chapter 3, at verse 1, listening carefully to the God-breathed scriptures. Beloved, I now write to you this second epistle, in both of which I stir up your pure minds by way of reminder, that you may be mindful of the words which were spoken before by the holy prophets and of the commandment of us, the apostles of the Lord and Savior, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts and saying, where is the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water, and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water. But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. But, beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance." But the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night, in which the heavens will pass away with a great noise, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up. Therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? because of which the heavens will be dissolved, being on fire, and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Nevertheless, we, according to his promise, look for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, looking forward to these things, be diligent to be found by him in peace, without spot and blameless. And consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation, as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you, as also in all his epistles, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. You therefore, beloved, Since you know this beforehand, beware, lest you also fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him 
be the glory, both now and forever. Amen. God's word. Should we ask God for his blessing? Oh, Lord, our God, you spoke long ago through the apostle Peter, and you saved your people by the word you gave them. And you have inscripturated that word for us. And you've appointed your providence on this first worship service of a new year of 2023 that we should hear the same word. We pray it would be our salvation, that we not be led astray, but that we'd be warned, encouraged, and strengthened, that we might be ready for the coming of our Savior, Jesus Christ. God, grant us this grace by your word, as you are able and willing. For Jesus' sake, amen. Congregation of Christ, we look back at a year gone by, and we can give thanks, can't we, for God's countless mercies to us, the God who has guided us and guarded our lives, who's protected and provided. He's a faithful, a faithful covenant Lord to us. We have much to be thankful for. But as we stand now this morning on the threshold of a new year, it's fitting for us to dedicate ourselves to God and for us to take inventory and to ask the question, is my life on the right track? Is my life oriented towards the thing that really matters. In this year, if Christ delays and gives us breath for 365 days, then we presumably will have a year filled with, with many smaller events, right? We will go to work, go to school. We have appointments on the calendar for the doctor or dentist. We, we maybe have a vacation. We have some family events and so forth. And we have many, many smaller goals, don't we? We have goals about projects we like to accomplish, goals maybe about health and fitness, maybe some New Year's resolutions. But the question that God brings to us this morning is the question, is your life focused on the main event, and is the main goal of history the goal of your life? Because all of history and every single one of our lives is racing towards a climactic moment when the Son of God will appear and every man, woman, and child will be placed in one of two categories, either those found in Christ Jesus or those found outside of Christ Jesus. And for those found outside of Christ Jesus, there will be the most terrible suffering and wrath of the Holy God. But for those found inside Christ Jesus, united to him by faith, the most glorious new beginning, a new creation, a new heavens and a new earth in which Peter says, righteousness dwells. Or as one translation puts it, the home of righteousness. A place where righteousness is not an occasional visitor or some rare species that you might spot on occasion but the entire new, renewed cosmos, heavens and earth, together now will be dwelt in by the rightness of God. And so for those who grieve the sin and rebellion of the world, and for those who grieve their own sin, what a, what a wonder to think of that, a whole new, remade world in which righteousness, the rightness of the holy God, fills it. 
And Peter says, I don't want you to be caught off guard on the day of Christ's return because for those who are not watching and living with that as their goal, then the day will overtake them as an unexpected visitor, as an intruder coming into your home, a thief in the night. So instead, he says, it's my duty to remind you. And that's what we need. What we need most of all the Christian life is not to learn something new. But Peter says more than once in this epistle, it's my duty to remind you. And this is what it is to be a Christian. It's to be reminded. It's to remind our children. It's to remind one another, lest we lose sight of the main thing. And so this morning, the Lord God wants to remind us because he loves us. And he wants to call us to wait expectantly for that return of our Savior. And I'd like to look at 2 Peter 3 as a whole this morning because I think Peter gives us four things that are involved in that waiting. Or he answers, if you say, how shall we wait? He, he gives four answers. Number one, expect worldly ridicule. Number two, trust the sovereign word, not the word of man. Number three, appreciate God's timing. Don't be impressed with your own schedule. And number four, live a forward-looking life in all holiness and godliness. First of all, we ought to expect worldly ridicule as we wait. The hope that we hold dear, that we confess is the very reason of our existence, to behold the face of God and to, to bask in his glory one day, is the thing that the world cares nothing about and thinks nothing about. Peter says, knowing this first, verse 3, Knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days, walking according to their own lusts, and saying, Where, where's the promise of his coming? For since the fathers fell asleep, died, all things continue as they were from the beginning of creation. So they live their lives by what they think. This is the world we live in, and our culture is very much a materialistic age, right? Our, 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 our fellow neighbors are, are very much convinced that what you see is what you get. There's, there's nothing hidden. There's nothing spiritual. There's nothing invisible. This is it. You got matter. And we look at history. Things go on. Each day again, the sun comes up. And so we know that's all there is. So what you Christians talk about is, is just a child's game. It's just your dream and illusion. There's no day of reckoning. Might as well eat, drink, and be merry. Tomorrow you die. Or some a little more noble, live a good life. So when you finish, you've done your best and you can have a good legacy. But that's the world's mindset. Believers find their hope continually assaulted, both by those who outrightly mock it, but even by those who mock it in more subtle ways. Oftentimes by their immorality. Telling Christians to get with the times, to get used to people living together without being married, to get used to homosexuality, to evolve and adapt as the world does. All of that is a mockery of our hope. It's saying that there's nothing beyond this world. There's nothing else. The world mocks young people and young adults. They say that your identity is bound up with the clothes you wear or the car you drive. In lots of different ways, our hope is mocked. And all this mockery can weigh upon us. As we hear it incessantly proclaimed, as we watch people devote their lives, you can watch YouTubers who are very devoted to something, to helping poor people or to 
establishing a business or whatever it be, and you see that they're very sincere in pouring out their lives and being ambitious for something, we can begin to think, can all these people be wrong? That we Christians alone really know what history is about, where all things are headed? But the Bible says, yes, the world is blind. They are spiritually blind. Jesus told us that right up to to the day of the flood, in the days of Noah, people were eating and drinking and marrying and giving in marriage. They had no concept of what was coming. They denied it. And Peter here says of these mockers that, that they will walk according to their own lusts and they will deliberately, verse 5, willfully forget the word of God. And so the Lord by his spirit is saying to us here, don't be confused by the ridicule. Be aware of the fact that you're living in the last days. Expect this foolishness in the world They mocked your Savior too, and his hope as he hung on the cross, they told him there was no hope for him. And they're still mocking Christ today. They're mocking his promise of his return. Everything hasn't continued on as it has from the beginning. William Hendrickson writes, everything goes on the same. No, they leave out the account of the birth, death, and resurrection of Christ. They intimate that the personal work of Christ are without any validity and have no bearing on the natural order of events. But this is the point. The coming of Christ has changed everything, and his eventual return will bring about the consummation. The world mocks, mocks Christ. They mock our hope. And and the Lord is arming us here so that we won't be shaken by it. John Whitecross, in his little book, The Shorter Catechism Illustrated, tells a story from centuries ago of, of a group of people on a stagecoach riding together, and one of them wanting to be the life of the party begins to, to mock everything spiritual, and then starts in on the prophecies of the Bible. It says, the prophecies, you know, what a joke those are. They were written after the event. Anyone can write a prophecy after it happened. They were written after the event. To which one of the party, a minister who had been silent up to that point, said, may I, may I mention one prophecy as an exception? The man said, go ahead. He quoted 2 Peter 3, verse 3, knowing this first, that scoffers will come in the last days. And he replied after that, or he said after that, Now, sir, whether the event be not long after the prediction, I leave the present company to judge. See, that's the point. As you people mocking your hope, instead of being shaken by it, you should say this is the fulfillment of prophecy. That media and news stations and celebrities and Celebrity YouTubers and our neighbors and co-workers can all together declare that there's nothing beyond this world. It's not something that should shake us, but say, look, at God's word is true. This is exactly what's happening in the last days. But at the same time, we ought to examine our hearts and lives and ask, where has the ridicule of unbelievers affected me? Have you asked yourself that question? As you look back over the past year, can you say that? Where, where has all of this ridicule weakened my resolve or distracted my focus? Have all my conversations with my neighbor about his, his new vehicle 
about his recreation. When he speaks, this is all there is, the meaning of life. Has it led me to begin to think that my house remodeling or my vacation or my recreation is the thing I should be living for? When I listen to my coworker so overly concerned with his investments and his great ambition to retire wealthy, has it begun to play upon me that I'm beginning to interpret my life in those terms? Has the ridicule of the world caused me to lose hope in the hope of Scripture? So God warns us, be alert. Scoffers will come. In the last days. But waiting for Christ's return is not just a matter of expecting worldly ridicule. It's secondly a matter of trusting the sovereign word. Trusting the sovereign word. Verses 5 through 7, Peter writes, For this they willfully forget, that by the word of God, the heavens were of old, and the earth standing out of water and in the water, by which the world that then existed perished, being flooded with water, But the heavens and the earth, which are now preserved by the same word, are reserved for fire until the day of judgment and perdition of ungodly men. They, the world, deliberately refuses to believe the clear and proven word of God. The world has not continued on always the same, but God has been intimately involved in his creation from day one to the present, and always God's word has run the show. And so Peter speaks of of two significant Defining moments in the history of of the world. Number one, creation by the word of God. And then the flood by the word of God. Now, both of these events involved immense amounts of water. In one case, God spoke and it separated the water from the dry land and made a habitat for humanity. In the other case, God released the waters and flooded that habitat and destroyed humanity, all but eight people. But in both cases, it was the word of God that did this, Peter said. These were not natural happenings. They were the work of God. And now he says in verse 7 that right now the whole world is being preserved by that same word, and it's being reserved for the day of judgment. It's going to be a cosmic event. Great fire, loud noise. It's going to purge the world of everything wicked. It's going to renew the world and refine it like a refiner's fire to bring forth what is good and beautiful and new heavens and a new earth by the word of God. Because we've seen God's word so powerful and effective in the past, we should have no doubt that God's word will prove just as effective on the day of judgment. Proud man wants to believe that his word is powerful. Right? We have people that make predictions about all kinds of things, who boast about what they're going to do, what the market's going to do, what this and that's going to do, as if the word of man is mighty. And the Lord says, don't be fooled. The world was made by my word. The world was destroyed by my word. The word, world is preserved by my word. And the world will be judged by my word. It's my word that controls everything. Now, boys and girls, some of you played musical chairs this past summer. Remember that on the back lawn at the church picnic? Chairs in a circle, and you walk around for as long as the music plays. 
And then at the harvest party up here on the platform, there's something similar, right? A cakewalk, and you walk from one square to another for as long as the music plays. But as you walked, you weren't in control of the music, were you? Someone else had their finger on the button. And when they acted, the music stopped. Man thinks he's something as he walks in circles boasting. But it's the Lord God whose finger controls everything. God's word is the foundation. And so this is not some illusion, this hope that we have. It's not some dream we've had. It is the revelation of God's word that the heavens will pass away with a great noise and the elements will melt with fervent heat. Both the earth and the works that are in it will be burned up, dissolved, melt with fervent heat to bring forth a new heavens and a new earth. That day is not going to be annihilation and the destruction of everything, but the, the fires that destroy wickedness will be the fires that purify, that bring a cosmic sanctification upon all of creation. And as we see, it's by the word of God, then we're called to interpret everything by the word and to value that word of God more than anything else in the world. Truth be told, we often value the word of man man more than the word of God, don't we? We, we could be affected by days by something someone said to us. What do they mean by that? be affected in our life greatly by what's proclaimed by, by investment folks about what the economy is going to do or so forth. Whose word is to govern our lives and to be the thing that controls us, that impresses us? What a blessing it is to have in our hands the word of God. We don't have to live by way of speculation. We live by divine revelation. God, the living God, has spoken. And what a blessing to be given new hearts in Christ Jesus and have our blind eyes open up that we can read this and believe it, that this is the word of truth. And since God's word is everything, then then we should make it our goal in 2023 that this word should fill us. Remember what, 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 what the Apostle Paul writes in Colossians, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly in all wisdom. Let it dwell in you richly. Be faithful. Coming to worship service to hear the word proclaimed. Feed on that word. Be good students of the scriptures in your home. We devote ourselves oftentimes to, to things. And we, we meditate on them, we study them, we work at them. But for some reason, when it comes to the book, we often think that five minutes of scripture reading suffices. Put it away, that's the end of it. Devote hours to learning a video game or hours to, to learning a sports team and statistics. And, and five minutes and we're done with this book. We're to be students of the word. Readers and studiers and meditators and memorizers and prayer warriors over this book. God, teach it to me. And we need to be that because Peter, you see, he says at the end here, verse 15, consider that the long-suffering of our Lord is salvation as also our beloved brother Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you 
as also in all these epistles, speaking in them of things in which are some things hard to understand, which untaught and unstable people twist to their own destruction, as they do also the rest of the scriptures. That's an amazing passage for a lot of reasons. One of them because Peter has just declared that what Paul has written is part of the scriptures, right? So the New Testament writers were very much aware, the apostles, that what they wrote is the word of God. That's amazing. But it's also amazing that Peter says the apostle Paul writes some things that are difficult to comprehend. Unstable men are twisting Paul's words to their own destruction. You need to be a student of the word to use it rightly and to know it. If we don't, then we get lost in a swirl, especially regarding things about about the future life. I've noticed over my years in the ministry that we are prone to a fascination with speculation. We, We are naturally prone to that. When I began in the ministry, there were some in the congregation, a couple who were very concerned about Harold Camping and the things he had said predicting the return of Christ in 1994 and then saying that was the end of the church age and offering a new prediction of Christ's return. Very troubled by this. Later in the ministry, there were some who were very curious about a book written by somebody who supposedly died and went to heaven then came back to tell us what heaven is really like. These are not good things. We're to live by the revelation God has given to us. To live by the word and to be careful students. The Lord has given us all we need to know. And this vain curiosity with speculation is not helpful to our Christian life, but harmful to our lives. Peter is warning the believers who are facing false teachers, take heed and be careful. What is your Bible reading plan for the new year? What is your study goal for the new year? How will the word of God dwell in you richly? Thirdly, we're called to wait for Christ by appreciating God's timetable. Appreciating God's timetable. The scoffers that Peter speaks of reason at the passage of so much time... The passing of all this time proves that he's not coming. And Peter says, well, their reasoning from a very limited human perspective, their view of time, but God looks at time differently because he's eternal. He created time. Before there was such a thing as time, God is. So Peter quotes from Psalm 90, right? says, verse 8, But beloved, do not forget this one thing, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years, and a thousand years as one day. So one writer puts it, God does not exist in time. All for him is an eternal now. All for God is an eternal now. Another commentator writes, God sees time with a perspective we lack and an intensity we lack. He can see the broad sweep of history in a moment. And yet he can stretch out a day with patient care. God sees the end from the beginning, doesn't he? He he saw us before we were created. 
He, he foresaw the day of our birth. He knows how many years we will live. He foresees our eternity in his presence. It's all the same to God and eternal now. And yet the sovereign God for whom all things are present is a God who labors, doesn't he, in time for his people. Christ came into time, and yet he's the God who's able to stretch out a day and accomplish more in a day than we could accomplish in 10,000 years. But Peter's point, as Mark Johnston puts it in his brief commentary, which I found quite helpful, Mark Johnston notes that Peter's actually mocking the mockers and insinuating that there's something really quite childish about their argument because they have no concept of time. And so he says they're like little children in the car who are, who are saying to their parents, are we there yet? Which we laugh about. And as the children grow up older, then they'll laugh about it with their kids. But it's the perspective of a child, which is really not a clear perspective on time. And yet these proud people think that they have all the wisdom about time. And Peter says not only are they are they childish in terms of how they look at time? They, they also are very foolish because they're accusing the Lord of being slack and keeping his promise. When in reality, Peter says, the Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but is long-suffering toward us, not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. The accusations they bring against God are actually accusations against the God who in mercy is delaying the return of Jesus so there's a day for repentance. Right? Just as Isaiah had proclaimed in chapter 55, seek the Lord while he may be found, call upon him while he is near. Or the Apostle Paul in 2 Corinthians 6 says, now behold, today is the day of salvation. These are the moments for being saved. When Christ comes back, it's too late. And so that years go by, it doesn't show that God is somehow a slacker like we are when we're late for work or whatever it be, but it shows that God is merciful, that he's giving time for sinners to turn to him and be saved. John Calvin suggests that we ought to Read it the same way in our personal lives. It's not just that the universe is preserved for a time that sinners might be saved. But, but Calvin says in our individual lives, God's sustaining each one of us, prolonging our days, is that we individually might repent God is not a God of indifference or inattentiveness, but a God of mercy. Hendrickson writes, Jesus will return when God's patience has ended, when the time allotted has expired, when the last believer has accepted Christ. Not human sin, but divine forbearance, which cannot be constrained, determines the delay. It is the sovereign God who graciously grants an interval for repentance. So goodbye to all critical scholarship that insists that, 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 that somehow Jesus thought he was going to return sooner within the same generation. And, and the apostles and all the church thought Christ was coming, but, but then something happened and now the Bible has to readjust. No. God's plan is eternal as God is eternal. God has not changed the day. But God has allotted a period of time for repentance. 
God's calendar and timetable are beyond ours. And so this should remind us to be patient and humble. In the Old Testament, they waited for centuries for the Messiah to come. Has God forgotten us? Where's the Messiah? But in the fullness of time, and it's the same today, it should be comforting to us to know that God does not see time as we do, but he's the eternal God. Even our personal lives, we often get derailed by a trial. It drags on, and we, we feel so overwhelmed that something has gone horribly wrong. And then sometimes even in older years, I've, I've heard many older saints say things like, Lord has forgotten me. All my friends, all my loved ones have been called away, and I'm still here. The Lord has forgotten me. No, God is never late, but always on time. And as we look upon his sovereign rule of time, we may be patient, knowing that every day, every year has a purpose in God's eternal economy. Finally, we're to wait for the return of Jesus by living a forward-looking life, living a forward-looking life. Peter says in verse 10, the day of the Lord will come as a thief in the night. Heavens will pass away with a great noise. Elements will melt. Verse 11, therefore, since all these things will be dissolved, what manner of persons ought you to be in holy conduct and godliness, looking for and hastening the coming of the day of God? Judge of all is coming. Nothing will be untouched by his appearance. Everything will be laid open and bare and exposed. Everything brought to the light. Every sin not paid for at the cross will be paid for in another way. So it's a day of terror to those found outside of Christ, but to those found in Christ, it is our hope. Heidelberg Catechism in Lord's Day 19 says, How does Christ's return to judge the living and the dead comfort you? Well, that's a great question. How does the return of the judge comfort you? And we confess, in all my distress and persecution, with uplifted head, I confidently await the very judge who has already offered himself to the judgment of God in my place and removed the whole curse from me. Christ will cast all his enemies and mine into everlasting condemnation, but will take me and all his chosen ones to himself into the joy and glory of heaven. Is that your confidence as you enter 2023? You say that? I, with uplifted head, look for the judge to come. I fear no terror because I know that the judge I see coming will be the one who bled for me, who knows my sins are paid for. It's in him that my hope rests, that he has covered all my sin, that I stand righteous before God because of him. Come, Lord Jesus. Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you trust him? Are you ready to see him? Don't race off into a new year if you don't have this issue settled in your life today. We have no idea how many days or even hours we have left on this planet. If you've been delaying, then hear the summons of the word. 
God has given you this day of life to lead you to repentance. And this word to call you in all of his love and mercy, assuring you that those who call upon Christ will be saved. Confess your sin and fall upon him. And being assured then of a glorious future, then our lives should demonstrate a real desire to know that future in the present. Peter says, if you know this is going to happen, fire's going to come, new heavens and new earth, the home of righteousness, the dwelling of God with men, then what kind of people should you be? Well, if that's your great goal and future, then you want to live already now in step with what is to be. It's hypocrisy to say, I I want to go to heaven if my life does not in any way resemble the kingdom of heaven, right? It's hypocrisy to say, I want to go to heaven where God is if in the present I do everything I can to escape God. But Peter says, if, if that's your hope, then what kind of person should you be? You should be living a holy life, a godly life, and looking for that day. I love that description the Apostle Paul gives of the Thessalonians when he, when he reminds them of their conversion, that you turn from idols to the living God to serve him and to wait for his son from heaven. That's what you did. You turn from idols to serve the living and true God and to wait for his son from heaven. And then Peter ends with this two-pronged Exhortation, verses 17 and 18. The negative, beware lest you fall from your own steadfastness, being led away with the air of the wicked. And then the positive, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Peter is very concerned about false teaching among these Christians, whom he writes. And the church has plenty of false teachers today who tell you that That if you believe enough, you can be wealthy as a Christian, you can be healthy, health and wealth gospel. But also, lots of more subtle versions of that 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 would suggest to you that, that Christianity can be one slice of your life, but you don't have to really be radical in your discipleship. You don't have to really give up everything for Jesus. Religion can be a compartment of your life. It's not what the Bible says. Only those who find their life are those who lose their life. If your life is not surrendered to the Lord Jesus Christ, then you're being led astray. So watch out for false teaching. But then he says, grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord. Hasten the day of the Lord by bringing the glory and holiness of that day into your present life now, that you begin more and more to live in step with what is to come, grow in the grace of God, grow in the knowledge of the Lord, grow in that holiness. It's really striking, I think, that Peter doesn't say, look, Christ is coming back, so try to hold on, and when Jesus comes, he'll take care of the rest. No, he actually calls us to growth, to increase, When we come to the end of 2023, if the Lord preserves us till then, will we look more like Jesus Christ than we do this morning? Will we know Christ better than we do this morning? Will we have in any way grown in the grace 
and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior. A reminder for parents, fathers and mothers that are calling us to help our children do that. We devote a lot of time to teaching them other things, teaching them how to play sports maybe, or how to do a chore, or how to look at money. We seek their safety in lots of ways. We want to protect them. But do we seek their eternal safety to be ready for the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ? Husbands and fathers, will our home be a place of growth in this year? Will we be men ourselves who are trying to grow or willing to be challenged when our wife points out something that does not conform to the image of Christ? We'll be faithful to bring our families to hear the word of God proclaimed and we'll say to ourselves, there is nothing more significant in the life of my child than to hear the proclamation of the word. That we'll seek in our home to grow in godly character. Not content to get by, but to pray, God, make us more like Jesus, the one we long to see. And Peter concludes it all with saying, to him be glory both now and forever. Amen. So this letter, like all the letters of Scripture, are punctuated by doxology, by word of praise, and how fitting it is that Peter, as he brings our minds into the future, should end with glory to God, because that's what we're going to sing for all eternity. Praise be to Jesus, he's conquered. Glory be to Christ who rescued us and redeemed us. Praises be to the one whose name is vindicated now before all of the world, the Lord of glory. To him be glory both now and forever. Amen and amen. Let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for the reminders you give us how we need our hearts to be stirred up and realigned. We pray you would challenge us, Lord, where we're living dangerously, not giving proper attention to your word, overly concerned with the word of men, falling in love with the things below and not focused on the life to come. We pray, God, that you would help us, that you'd convict us. We thank you for holding firm our faith in the past year. We pray, Lord, for any who do not know the Lord Jesus, are not ready to see him. May their hearts be convicted and awakened that we might be found in Jesus Christ righteous before you at his appearing. Oh God, how we long for that day. Come, Lord Jesus, come quickly. Amen.